so we're in this series of um, classes uh, on the, the Terragatha and the Terragatha, the poems of the uh, awakened monks and nuns from the original Sangha. And I'll just read the one paragraph introduction to this. Uh, here, Sajata, enamored with the world and her position of wealth and privilege, encounters the Buddha. She hears from him a simple, pure, and direct Dhamma, and her mind clears. As with all of the poems in the Theragatha and the Theragatha, their encouragement towards the pure teachings of an awakened human being remain after 2,600 years. Excuse me. And so again, this is another one of those poems which kind of um, synopsizes uh, the individual's experience with the Dhamma. And they're also... um, immediate and poignant and they contain so much information i just think it's just a beautiful part of the sutta pitaka and here um tom and i had a little discussion about climate change before and this the sutta will relate in a it's it's <laughs> it's not part of my argument tom is what i'm saying it but it, you might see how it relates to what we talked about because it is uh sujata's um disentanglements with the world and recognizing uh, that it was her entanglements with the world and um, the ideas that the world massages as important that she was able to recognize and abandon uh, and so awaken. And it really was her understanding of the underlying ideology that supported her lifestyle, meaning that she believed that there was something valuable in always building on your wealth and privilege and being acknowledged for the certain positions that you have in life rather than simply resting in her own understanding. And when she was able to make that transition from really a, a, a person trying to maintain a position because there's something lacking in themselves to simply understanding, I'm just a human being and it's all I can ever be, then her mind cleared. It's just a couple of lines. Bhikkhuni Sajata's final knowledge. Adorned with jewels and fancy dress, the finest perfume, my servants waiting. Uh, to me, again, look, this is both a practical teaching, but also metaphorical. What are my servants waiting? In my mind, my servants, my servants waiting is my ever-present mind trying to continue my ignorance. My servants are always waiting. They're always right there at the door. What can I attach myself to? She continues, with food and drink, with my sustenance always there, ordinary and fancy, maintaining that lifestyle. We went off to my favorite gardens, to the things that fed her the most, the the deepest senses to her, um, the, the deepest encouragement to her sensual fulfillment in the world. Then she says, we indulge in food and sport constant distractions. For a pleasant time we did this and then spent, we turned for home. She had her fill of the world. On the way, a monastery, a place of rest. The awakened one said, come here. She approached and bowed and sat to one side. With compassion and penetrating wisdom, he taught me the great truths. His words enlightened, my mind cleared. I touched the Dhamma. Dustless, Deathless. Deathless refers to a mind no longer rooted in ignorance. Knowing the true Dhamma, 
I went forth from home to homelessness. She left all the nonsense of the world behind. And with knowledge of the three themes, greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, she finally gained the Vipassana, the true insight that the Dhamma is made to deliver. And only those three things, knowledge of the three themes I attain, the Buddha's Dhamma is full. It's not empty. And that last line teaches everything. Even during the Buddhist time, there was always this rush towards emptiness and divulging ourselves of all things of the world because the world is evil, because the world attracts us, because the world corrupts. And Shijata's, Sujata's mind cleared and said, no, all that is in my mind. And once I abandon it, I'm living the dustless in the deathless state. The world is full. It's not empty. Stop striving to empty ourselves of all the things that we think are wrong with us and wrong with the world and realize that self-loathing is a disease. Understanding is a liberation. There's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong. And again, this, just, to, just so Tom knows that this is not a point, there's nothing wrong with the world in the Dhammic sense. It's only ignorance that is manifesting in the world. And it's only ignorance that we have to understand and we liberate ourselves. So there's a lot in that short little sutta, but also taken in the context of that entire book of the Sutta Pitaka, there's much brilliance. And I should say that uh, Tom met our friend Larry on retreat. And I think you'd notice that Larry's quite an artist as well with, with his other talents. He's agreed to do the illustrations to the Dhammapada and he's working on it. What's like the... Um, if you've seen the ox herding pictures, kind of like in that theme. So we got that going for us. That's today's talk. Tom, what do you think? Um, um, sorry, I just need a... Because it went... We went... Um, it passed by so quickly. I just need a few minutes to sort of yeah, reflect no on it. And then it's sit, but... Um, yeah, I like it. Uh, maybe Matteo can go first. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, Matteo, what do you have to say for you? Good to see you. Anyway, how have you been? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say because, like, you say everything. So it's, it's like, <laughs> I didn't mean to say it's, everything. It's a short poem, as usual, with the Terigata, Terigata, and there is everything. I understand. Like, uh, I like. Uh, how you metaphor when you say to go from uh, I can't remember the exactly word you go from home to homelessness homelessness like yeah from the world that is very um, yeah it's very powerful sentence to to remember yeah yeah it's a common theme too that I mean those words are uttered throughout the suttas that we the whole point of the Dhamma it's what the Buddha did practically and metaphorically isn't it when he left the palace grounds he left home and went into homelessness and it was through that act of uh, literally putting the world behind that he was able to develop awakenings, become a, a fully mature human being. And again, that's a, that is the, um, the, the delineation, isn't it, between a wise Dharma practitioner and those that are still clinging to the world. As, and, and I see it all the time. It, this, it is this point that really takes people out of the Dhamma, even those that might have been practicing for a few years, because they can't they can finally reconcile with letting the world behind, again, letting, putting aside home and truly entering homelessness. 
And again, looking at the practicality of the Buddha's life, it didn't mean that he never ate another meal or put on clothes or had medicine or shelter. It simply means, it touched on something we talked on before, Tom. It simply means that he, he shed all the trappings of the world and, and, and was left with only what was necessary for his human life, which is a much simplified life. He lived you know, out in the woods. He didn't need a big house anymore. He didn't need a lot of food around him. He had one meal a day. He didn't need closets full of clothes. He had just what he needed. He had three robes, a light one, a heavier one for when it was raining, and an even heavier one when it got cold, just practical. And that's how he lived his life, free and liberated. We might choose to do things differently. Like, for instance, I can't just go leave my house and find a nice place on the side of the road and pitch a tent. I'll get arrested at some point, or at, at least I'll be dissuaded from that choice and put someplace else. But during the Buddhist time, that was respected. Now, we live in times where we, we might have to um, be a little bit more involved in the world in order to live in the world the way it is today. But we don't have to enter the world in order to do this. We can remain liberated from the world while we live. And, and there's many examples during the Buddha's lifetime of those that did just that. Anatha Pandika comes to mind. I mention him often as he was the major, one of the major benefactors of Siddhartha. And it's likely that we wouldn't have these teachings today if it wasn't for Anatha Pandika and many other um, business people during the Buddha's time who took to the Dhamma, awakened, but continued living within the world, but not in the world. So again, that's the teaching. Um, and you're right, Mateo, it's just that, that defining point of leaving home behind and entering homelessness. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add, Matteo? I'm fine with that, yeah. Thanks, Matteo. Tom, have you had a chance to reconcile some of your thoughts? Um, yeah, so I, I, uh, um, I also like that, that, yeah, that, that image of sort of from home to homelessness. Um, I also like the, the final lines, the Buddhist Dharma is full, not empty. Yeah. Um, which, uh, again, I know it kind of alluded at the time to emptiness but it also alludes to that idea that you're you know just like you were saying if you're if you're just living with three robes one light medium and heavy or whatever you we're we're, we're um we're conditioned to believe that we're giving up so much yeah um, actually we're gaining so much more through yeah. wise restraint yeah yeah um, empty so, closets for one yeah exactly exactly so so uh, that's something that I like that image, and it's, it also rings true for me and for many other people, even people that don't take to the Dharma. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people that uh, there's, there's a bit of a, a fad or a craze nowadays towards minimalism. Yeah, and a minimalist lifestyle, and it's not really grounded in the in the in the Dharma, but at least it's it is grounded in some wisdom that you can you know gain more through through letting go of of of, of feeling like you need to have so much so yeah uh, you know and, and it feels good for people um even if they don't they wouldn't associate it with four noble truths or whatever but it just feels good to have yeah. a, a lighter closet or whatever so I, I like that i just had a question um the dust when it says dustless and deathless dustless um um would refer to um the sort of in, 
impure like dust would be like impurities of the mind or, or what yeah. does it mean because i and yeah. then you always have an image of a speck of dust in the eye which is yes yes like yes that's it mind. that that's what it so the Buddha used that phrase. His teachings is, is for those with just a speck of dust in their eyes. Meaning, it, it, first it says, I'm not the Savior. I'm not here to save everyone. This teaching is for those that, he might say, in other words, for eyes to see and ears to hear. Those that can actually practice the Dhamma. And he recognized even before he started teaching that it wouldn't be for everyone. It would be for those with just a speck of dust in their eyes. And then the deathless state is how the Buddha refers to the ending of ignorance, because living a life rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths is like li a living death. And so that's what she's referring to. I was one of those with just a speck of dust in their eyes. I was able to cast it out through the Dhamma, and I've now awakened to an actual human life. I mean, so, oh, okay, so sorry, sorry, John, just to no. come back. This, actually, be quite... Can you explain? I'm not sure if this... I'm not sure if this helps for Matteo as well, but certainly for me, dust, a speck of dust in their eye, does that mean that they only have a little bit of ignorance? Is the dust representing ignorance? Well, it also is, is reference to that, that it's, that it's ultimately it's nothing. It's like a speck of dust in your eyes. And, and when, when the proper mindfulness, refined mindfulness is applied to the dust in your eye, it's easy to brush it out. But we do it, and it's, it's also metaphor for, or practical reference to we have to remove the speck of dust. It's up to us to do it through the Dhamma. The Dhamma removes the dust and we enter a, a life. We actually have a human life. We are a fully mature. I understand it. So even if I'm, if I'm pretty mature, right? I, I mean, if that, if that is the appellation you could give me and it's true, if I'm, you know, I'm mostly mature, I'm not all the way, am I? So I'm not, I don't have quite the capacity to understand this moment. And if I don't, I'm simply not living this moment. It, and it is just like that. And if I can have a broad and penetrating understanding of what it means to be a human being in this moment, now I understand human life through understanding me. Because what other understanding would there be? What understanding could I have except understanding me but if I can understand me then I can understand all of the life that I'm able to understand that I can perceive that I can see I can actually have and again I'm not saying that I can understand how universes are formed but I can understand that there are universes and for many of us that's enough for some of us that awakened human being might be so inspired to now put his energies towards learning more about the universes. I might be, as an awakened human being, like to learn more about stamp collecting. And that would be, and, and neither one would have any more value than the other. Do you see? It's just my life that I'm living. Or I may decide to just understand what it means to live the rest of my life liberated. And that's enough. So now I don't have to gain anything, I don't have to fix anything, and I can simply look out on the world with understanding. And not a, not a, a, a grasping after smile, you know, the, the Cheshire cat, but a calm smile out of understanding. But look within, behind that smile is an understanding of the things we talked about earlier and the things that we understand. That my smile is here because I understand, but underneath the smile is also an understanding of the great suffering 
that human beings are going through right here and right now. So I don't, I don't lose my understanding of suffering. In fact, I have a penetrating understanding of it because I can understand my own, but I can also look out on other people. And even though they might be going through, somebody, I could look out at a picture of somebody dying from AIDS. And even though that didn't happen to me, I can understand it because I understand suffering. And if I understand suffering, I understand all suffering. If I understand joy, I understand great joy. If I understand the most important thing, calm, no matter what is occurring, I understand calm. How else could I understand it but giving myself the opportunity to do it? How do I do it? By putting aside everything in the world, going from home to homelessness in this moment. And it's only in this moment that I have to do it. And it's only in this moment that I have to do it both metaphorically and practically. So we can live with the piles of gold that we piled up around us. That's fine. Recognize that it's not you. Don't let it weigh you down. Whatever your gold is, it's yours. You can keep it. You own it. But don't let it define you. Because then it's just your life unfolding. Okay, that's again. That's my again my talk for today. It's such an inspiring talk to me because this is one of those poems that had such an effect on me because it was it was at that point it was reinforcing and almost giving me encouragement to metaphorically go into everything that I have and just throw it out. You know what I'm saying? Just throw it out. Get rid of it. But what it ultimately got to was something that me and Tom talked about, and I'll continue to look at it, Tom, I always do, is get rid of my ideas and see what's left. And that's hard to do, especially with these core ideas that we all hold. You know, again, a lot of those are, and for me, there were a lot of more altruistic ideas rooted in salvation rather than the reality of human life. And I know you've heard me say that most, and this is really the biggest bugaboo, if I can use an American term, because as human beings, we're, we are inherently compassionate human beings. We want to do good in the world. We can't help it. And again, again, there's very, very few people that don't have that, but I would call it an affliction if your mind is still rooted in ignorance, because we all see, again, not everybody who's compassionate will do this, but we've all seen people acting out of what they felt was compassion doing great damage in the world. And I'll just, the Crusades and Jihad and uh, maniacs like Hitler or Putin are acting out of what they think is salvation. It's just rooted in severe ignorance, but just to make the point. So, um, it takes the Dhamma to balance out that compassion, but the Buddha even talks about that. He talks about the need for wisdom to go along with the compassion that we have. Uh, and, you know, I know both of you very well. You have huge compassionate hearts. It's, and I would say it's really the reason why you're here right now listening to this bald guy in Upper Black Eddy, Pennsylvania, because you are deeply compassionate men and you want to continue to do good. In fact, I would say you want to do more good. That's why you're here and you both deserve... Again, as I'm saying this, it brings tears to my eyes because this, what we're talking about, what I just said, to me is the most poignant thing in life is... <laughs> whether you're in the Dhamma or not. <clears throat> Sorry.
man, what really gets me is people helping people. It gets me every time. Whether they're awakened or not, it doesn't matter. And even when they're doing great harm, it still gets me because I understand what they're trying to do. But it's also the saddest thing to me because I understand that people want to help people and they just don't know how to do it. And so they hurt themselves and they hurt others. And it just keeps that, you know, remember the Nagara Sutta, it just keeps that whirlwind going. Um, I, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying there, maybe the reason why it bothers me so much or it catches me so much is I know that's what catches everyone and it's what caught me for many years and maybe it's still what catches me. But it's also what I see. It's I see the goodness in, in just talking about you two because of that. And you're, you're working so hard to take the next step into wisdom because you know that it's, it's just going to make you even better human beings than you already are. And that's going some because you are. So that's, I think I want to end there. Um, but I, if you have anything you'd like to say, please say so. I don't, never want to end the class by doing that. Say that maybe just in the dust. Uh, Samyutta Nikaya six point one. That is the I think is the main sutra where they talk about the dust in the eyes. Yeah. Buddha. I'll look there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but again, it's a that, that is one of the major ones. But he, the, the Buddha mentions it often. Again, just to remind us that it's not. And you hear me say it. It's not that big of a deal what we're doing. It just seems like that. But the the. The things that seem to hold us back from going all the way, if you will, are just ideas. But they're solidified ideas. In the Dhamma, we call them mental fabrications. We've created them. But that's all they are. They're just ideas. And we've all had them, you know. And, and again, Tom, I'll admit that, you know, I might have a very strong idea. But I look at it all the time, by the way, just like you do. And just as Matteo does. You know, we can't help but live this life and not look at our ideas and our opinions and really the most important opinion is, yeah, this is right for me. This is what I'm going to, this is how I'm going to live my life. Because that liberation that we talk about as we're living the Dhamma is here right now. It's not something out there. You know, even if we have that little bit of dust, we're looking in the right way, you know, and, this, and we have the benefit of this. So we'll finish with uh, Metta as we always do. And, you know, by the way, uh, I think you notice it. This is the Buddha's description of the resolution or the culmination of the Dhamma. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another 
or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you both for a wonderful class today. And thank you, Tom, for a wonderful conversation. Peace, everyone. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.